this topic, as you mentioned, is especially germane and timely in light of the dynamic environment we're dealing with in relation to the coronavirus and the different initiatives and directives that the federal government, as well as some states and local governments, are issuing at this time. So before I begin any presentation, I have to give the requisite disclaimer that the information is not meant to constitute legal advice. Consult a lawyer if you need advice on a particular situation. So before we get into the overview of today's presentation, I wanted to begin with some headline highlights. And one item which came out around May the 8th or March the 18th is the PREP Act. And this is important for a couple of reasons, but I wanted to provide a little bit of background. The Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, PREP Act, actually was passed and signed into law in December of 2000. Okay, so I'm back. What would a presentation be without a little technical difficulty? So basically what the PREP Act did was to authorize the Secretary of Health and Human Services to issue a declaration to provide liability immunity to certain individuals and entities known as covered persons against any claim of loss caused by arising out of relating to or resulting from the manufacture, distribution, administration, or use of medical countermeasures, except for claims involving willful misconduct. And willful misconduct is also defined in the PREP Act. A provision of the Families First Coronavirus Response Act expands liability protections for N95 face masks which filter out approximately 95% of airborne particles. And under the PREP Act of 2005 for emergency use during the outbreak, these protections will expire on October 21st of 2024. The bill passed by a vote of 90 to 8 and headed for the president's desk to be signed. Interestingly, face masks approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration have additional splash protection and we're already immune from liability under the PREP Act. This new law extends the protection to all N95 face masks that are approved by OSHA and before they were not. So this is something to be aware of. The latter tap comprises actually the bulk of face masks on the market and is also used in medical settings. For those of you who watch the news or read various social media sites, the United States Surgeon General actually posted a tweet indicating that individuals should not go out and buy face masks. Rather, given the shortage that we're facing in light of healthcare providers, those masks need to be allocated to them. The other issue is that if you don't have it, it's really not going to help you. So those are just some items to be aware of. Another headline highlight relates to the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the increased suspicious spike in activity on its network over the previous weekend in what security officials called a cyber incident that did not disrupt the agency's response to the COVID-19 virus. As many of the participants know, HHS oversees both the CDC and NIH, which are two government agencies coordinating the response effort to the coronavirus. What's important to note about this from a practical standpoint for healthcare providers and businesses in general 
that handle sensitive data is that not long ago, the FBI and Ponymon reports released that websites are becoming an increased point of entry for cyber attacks and social engineering. So you want to make sure that your website is secure because as many criminals do, they hope that people are focusing their attention on the news and not on what's going on with their cyber environment. So one way to mitigate against that, and I actually do this, is I have scans run on a weekly basis, sometimes bi-weekly, I get the reports that show that my pages associated with my website have been scanned and it notes if there are any issues and if there is an issue of someone in particular trying to disrupt the security of the site, then a separate email sent on top of that. So that really is an inexpensive but effective way for any business to thwart the new focus on websites. Additionally, people have asked me a lot of questions regarding what the United States Department of Justice is doing given that the DOJ enforces a multitude of laws, including the False Claims Act, which was passed in 1863. And Attorney General William Barr issued a directive to federal prosecutors to prioritize investigations of scam artists and hackers looking to exploit the coronavirus pandemic. Specifically, quote, the Department of Justice stands ready to make sure that bad actors do not take advantage of emergency response efforts, healthcare providers, or the American people during this crucial time. And we saw that put into action with a statement from the Oregon U.S. Attorney, specifically U.S. Attorney Bill Williams indicated that he's appointed federal prosecutors to coordinate and lead consumer financial fraud and civil rights violation cases that result from the coronavirus pandemic. While Americans work to protect themselves and their loved ones from the threat of the COVID-19, some individuals are actively trying to profit off of this emergency. Equally concerning, we have received reports of alleged civil rights violations stemming from the false belief that certain groups of people are more susceptible to carrying or contracting the virus based on their real or perceived race, ethnicity, employment, or other demographic characteristics. Now, the last part needs to be placed into context from a medical statistical perspective in that it's well known that individuals with compromised immune systems as well as older individuals are the ones with the more severe cases and are more susceptible to contracting the uh, COVID-19 and having more severe symptoms and adverse events as a result of it. Again, that's very different than using race, ethnicity, or employment, but it's something to be conscious of. Uh, pregnant women also fall into that category because typically they're considered to be immunocompromised as well. So there's a balance in terms of how certain statements are proffered by employers and relying on entities such as the CDC or World Health Organization or NIH for the statistics as they relate to the cases and the medical outcomes. So today I'm going to discuss COVID-19, the allocation of resources, and that's come up quite a bit in relation to ventilators and masks and quarantine, HIPAA and the disclosures of communicable diseases, teleworth worker versus telehealth considerations. They're very different and there's been some confusion even among non-healthcare lawyers about how this applies. OSHA, force majeure, contractual provisions, and then some compliance nuggets. Also, at the end, after the takeaway and question screen, I have provided a slide of resources with links 
to a lot of the sources that I utilized for this particular presentation. So first, let's get into COVID-19 as well as a comparison to the Ebola virus, which we saw in 2014 here in the United States, and then the allocation of resources and quarantine. So first, Ebola versus COVID. Well, there are some similarities. Specifically, the virus is transmitted to people from animals. Initially, this is how it happened in both instances. The virus originated outside of the United States and the disease can be fatal. The disparity in statistics regarding the number, number of individuals affected is in fact staggering. Ebola, the first case of Ebola was actually reported in the Democratic Republic of the Congo in 1976. For those who are not familiar where the Congo is, it is pretty much in the middle of Africa and it's near Angola. The pinnacle of the virus was reached between 2014 to 2016, with most of the diagnoses and deaths coming from Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone, also located within Africa. The most recent Ebola outbreak was in the Congo, and the RVSVZEBOV vaccine is being used in the ongoing 2018-2019 Ebola outbreak in the DRC. Interestingly, that particular RVSVZBOV is almost the precursor to the COVID-19 virus. One can think about it in a similar manner as HIV relates to AIDS. HIV comes first and then full-blown AIDS comes second. That's similar to what goes on actually with the coronavirus. There are also different strands of the coronavirus and some are considered more virulent than others. And it's important to note then if you fall into a certain category such as an elderly, someone who's immunocompromised and so forth, Look at the statistics and see what the likelihood is of contracting the higher risk strand and then what the ultimate outcomes are to date. Who reported four cases in the United States with one fatality in relation to Ebola? Early supportive care with rehydration, symptomatic treatment, improved survival. There is no licensed treatment proven to neutralize the virus but a range of blood immunological and drug therapies are underdeveloped, including the vaccine that was mentioned. Ebola and the wedding dress. For those of you who recall the Presbyterian Dallas Hospital incident in 2014, what happened was a patient came into the emergency room with symptoms the nurse, in fact, did enter the information into the EHR, but the treating physicians did not read the information as to where the person traveled to and from, what their symptoms were, things of that nature. And as a result, the nurse became exposed, another nurse became exposed. Instead of self-quarantining right away, even though she was not exhibiting any symptoms, she left the state of Texas and went to the state of Ohio to purchase a dress for her upcoming wedding from the dress shop coming attraction after she had helped treat Ebola patient Thomas Duncan. She had not yet been diagnosed with the virus. So that's one thing that would be a key point in any lawsuit. After Vincent had been diagnosed, State regulators in Ohio temporarily closed the shop as a precaution. Coming attractions later reopened but was never able to recover. The owner sued the hospital system, Presbyterian Dallas, alleging that the hospital failed to prevent the transmission of Ebola virus to the nurse through proper precautions and training and that the hospital's negligence caused the shop to close due to health concerns and adverse publicity, according to court papers. The trial judge refused to dismiss the complaint against the health system, Texas Health Resources, but an appeals court reversed that ruling, 
coming attractions is a claimant under the statute and that its claim against the hospital is a healthcare liability claim as the statute defines it. This is important because in Texas, anytime you have a healthcare liability claim, and in fact, even under the two statutes, which allow a person to file a private cause of action against a hospital each of their PHI, one has to get an expert report. And that did not happen in this case. It's hard to say what the outcome would have been, but here, coming attractions lawyer did not file the required expert report. And this is something that comes up quite a bit. In this instance, the Texas Supreme Court upheld the court of appeals ruling and the case was dismissed. Unfortunately, by not following the appropriate procedures as required in Texas, it could have detrimentally impacted the case in this instance. The other issue that is asked often is, can I file a negligence case against someone who has openly gone out knowing that they are diagnosed with the COV-19 virus. The reality is you can sue pretty much anyone unless it falls under the act that I mentioned earlier. However, it might not be a viable cause of action. And in light of the circumstances here, one always has to consider the ability of a party to pay for the lack of precautions or the negligence or recklessness that was utilized. Having said that, it might be a very different situation if a public entity or a restaurant, for example, has not taken the requisite precautions. And the reality is that people are doing all they need to do under the who and CDC guidelines, the likelihood of a successful recovery is probably pretty small in light of this being a pandemic and not being nearly as isolated as the Ebola virus was in the United States and throughout the world. So here, COVID was discovered in 2019 in China and I'm just using COVID, it's COVID-19, COV-19, or coronavirus are all synonyms that have been utilized in relation to various reports. But on March 11th, as everyone probably knows, who declared uh, COV-19 a pandemic, which is a global outbreak of disease. Notably, this WHO declaration is separate from the United States or any other country declaring the pandemic a national emergency. So that's something to be conscious of as well. The CDC uses the pandemic severity assessment framework to determine the impact of the pandemic. And two main factors are used to determine the impact of a pandemic. First, the clinical severity or how serious the illness associated with the infection is. And secondly, the transmissibility or how easily the pandemic virus spreads from person to person. And as of March 16th, there were more than 167,000 confirmed cases. And on Monday of this week, there were over 6,600 deaths, most of which have occurred outside of China. And a large number of those are concentrated in Italy as well. So health care and the allocation of resources. First and foremost, universal precautions should continue to be utilized by all healthcare workers. And anyone who works in healthcare appreciates firsthand that universal precautions include frequent hand washing and the use of appropriate protective gear, gloves, making sure that sharps needles are disposed of appropriately. If you're in an operating room setting, then you need to be scrubbed in and have the appropriate gown, gloves, face shield, goggles, and mask on. Concepts related to resource allocation, this is something that 
we discuss whenever I teach bioethics in terms of having a limited number of a certain item and a larger number of patients who need access to that item. Sometimes very tough decisions need to be made as to who has access to that, whether it's an organ for a transplant or in the current situation, a ventilator, or in the case of a mass casualty, how do you triage people? So basically, there are four categories. Uh, libertarian view is that everyone should receive healthcare benefits in proportion to what he or she will pay for. Egalitarian, everyone should receive healthcare benefits in equal proportion to his or her medical needs. Basic decent minimum, everyone should receive healthcare benefits in proportion to his or her basic medical needs, but beyond that, everyone should receive healthcare benefits in equal proportion to what he or she will pay. And then social justice, broad distribution of benefits and burdens in society. And when you have a pandemic, you really have to utilize social justice and egalitarianism and it's really social justice that prevails. And other countries in Europe have a different mentality that is ingrained into their society in terms of the allocation of resources. And that's something that truly as Americans and North Americans, we struggle with. When a finite number of resources exist, such as ventilators, an allocation of the resources needs to be made based on a variety of factors. Age has to be one of those factors. Comorbid conditions is another factor. Social uh, support is another factor that goes along with that. Just because you're elderly does not necessarily mean you will not have access to a ventilator, but there are times when decisions between, if you have one left, if a, a normally healthy 30-year-old who is not utilizing any drugs, is uh, healthy, does not have a lot of comorbid conditions, is in line and has a need versus someone who is 88 and is frail, that is something that can and needs to be taken into account. So who published this little snippet, Do the Five, and it makes sense. It's something we should be doing every day. But what they say is hands, wash them often, elbow, cough or sneeze into it, face, don't touch it, feet, stay more than three feet apart. However, more guidance suggests six feet apart. If you feel sick, stay home. HIPAA and public health disclosures. So the HIPAA is a vast law and it applies to different entities and in different ways. Really, a covered entity is the entity that is required to make the public health disclosures. And there are certain parameters in which they work. But this is not new. This is not coronavirus specific. This is something that regulators considered years ago. And so these provisions have, in fact, been in place. But before we delve into that, it's very important to understand who falls under the legal umbrella of HIPAA. First, we have covered entities, and those include healthcare providers, health plans, and healthcare clearinghouses. They, covered entities, are in privity of contract with business associates, and business associates are then in privity of contract with subcontractors. Anytime this type of linear relationship exists, one absolutely needs to have a business associate agreement in place. And even during this time of the coronavirus, there's no reason why businesses can't execute a business associate agreement. Most of the major technology companies already do. And so it makes sense that this would continue throughout this time. Texas House Bill 300 is important because like many state laws, the definition of covered entity is much broader and includes not only business associates and subcontractors and the federal definition of covered entities, 
but it includes anyone who creates, receives, maintains, and transmits protected health information. And Texas House Bill 300 was passed on September the 1st of 2012, so it has been in effect for quite some time. And the specific provisions became codified in the Texas Health and Safety Code and the Business and Commerce Code. Finally, we look at the Federal Trade Commission, which fills the gap of federal HIPAA definitions. And anyone who creates, receives, maintains, and transmits protected health information. And there have been some actions taken against covered entities, such as CVS and Rite Aid and Henry Sheen for HIPAA violations. But because the Federal Trade Commission Act enables the Federal Trade Commission to have jurisdiction over consumer rights under Title V, that gives the Federal Trade Commission broader discretion. There's also the breach notification rule, which we'll hone in on in a little bit. For those of you who are not familiar with the legislative history of HIPAA, it was initially passed in 1996. In 2002, the privacy rule is published. 2003, the security rule is published, but its effective date is not until 2005, effective date, compliance date. 2009, the High Tech Act comes into being, and with that, we get the breach notification rule. We have some privacy and security proposed regulations, and then on January the 25th of 2013, the final omnibus rule was published in the Federal Register, and that site is 78 Federal Register 5566. It's effective March 26th of 2013, and compliance date for most provisions, not all, was September 23rd of 2013. As I mentioned before, the Federal Trade Commission has its own breach notification rule, and that requires certain businesses not covered by HIPAA to notify their customers and others if there's a breach of unsecured, individually identifiable electronic health information, and FTC enforcement began in February of 2010. General HIPAA items. The HIPAA privacy rule and security rule are still applicable during this pandemic. The privacy rule has always had an exception for health providers to report certain diseases or conditions of an individual patient to various state and federal government agencies, such as a state's Department of Health and Human Services or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The transmission of a patient's information still needs to occur in accordance with the security rule. So oftentimes various public health or government agencies have portals that providers can send information to or they send it via an encrypted email that is secure. So that's typically how that is accomplished. HIPAA has always allowed certain disclosure exceptions without the written authorization of a patient, including disclosures to other providers or third-party payers for the purposes of treatment, payment, or healthcare operations, to family members or others involved in the patient's care, or payment if certain conditions are met or for certain government or public safety concerns if regulatory requirements are satisfied. Other disclosures generally require the patient's consent or written authorization. PII and PHI, Privacy Rule Section CFR 164.514B and C apply in relation to the de-identification of protected health information. The HIPAA Privacy Rule sets forth two acceptable de-identification methods Expert determination, meaning an expert is utilized to ascertain that an individual could not be identified, and safe harbors, meaning no actual knowledge that PII, including biometrics, can identify an individual. Satisfying either method would likely demonstrate that 164.514A has been met and that the likelihood of exposure is there are also other exceptions, such as the law enforcement exception 
and the whistleblower and workforce member crime victim exception. So HHS published a coronavirus bulletin stemming back to February 2020, and this was even before who declared the pandemic and the president declared a national emergency in relation to the coronavirus. In general, except in limited circumstances described elsewhere in this bulletin, affirmative reporting to the media or the public at large about an identifiable patient or the disclosure to the public or media of specific information about treatment of an identifiable patient, such as specific tests, test results, or details of a patient's illness may not be done without the patient's written authorization. So again, even in light of the coronavirus, a covered entity cannot post a running list of who has the coronavirus on its website or on social media without a patient's express authorization to do so. It can, however, do the following activities. Treatment under the privacy rule covered entities may disclose without a patient's authorization PHI about the patient as necessary to treat the patient or to treat a different patient. So for example, a family member or someone who's been in close proximity to that patient. Treatment includes the coordination or management of healthcare and related services by one or more healthcare providers and others. Next, public health activities. The HIPAA privacy rule has long recognized the legitimate need for public health authorities and others responsible for ensuring public health and safety to have access to protected health information that is necessary to carry out their public health mission. Therefore, covered entities such as physicians and hospitals can and need to disclose protected health information without individual authorization. To a public health authority, at the direction of a public health authority, to a foreign government agency that is acting in collaboration with the public health authority, to persons at risk of contracting or spreading a disease or condition, if other law, such as state law, authorizes the covered entity to notify such persons as necessary to prevent or control the spread of disease or otherwise to carry out public health interventions or investigations. Oftentimes, the state laws do not name the individual person, but they will send out notice to those people they know to be potentially affected or perceived to be potentially affected and tell them to go and get tested. So all of that it determines and falls under state law. So that's something that I suggest you pull up the State Department of Health and Human Service or equivalent in a specific state to figure out what's going on in light of the coronavirus. Disclosures to family and friends. This again is not specific. And what was interesting about this bulletin is that it really reiterated provisions that have been in place for quite some time. There's nothing new related to disclosures. A covered entity may share PHI with a patient's family members identified by the patient as involved in the care. A covered entity may also share information as necessary to identify, locate, and notify family members, guardians, or anyone else responsible of the patient's location, general condition, or death. This may include where necessary to find uh, family members and others, the police, the press, or the public at large. Covered entities should do the following. First and foremost, get verbal permission from individuals or otherwise be able to reasonably infer that the patient does not object when possible. If the individual is incapacitated or not available, covered entities may share information for these purposes if in their professional judgment, doing so is in the patient's best interest. For information uh, for patients who are unconscious or incapacitated, a healthcare provider may share relevant information about the patient with a family, friend, etc. Typically, 
there is a designated person known as a surrogate decision maker, and that's done either on a case-by-case -case basis, or it might be in a medical record, or better yet, in a durable medical power of attorney or equivalent named document. So a provider may determine that it's in the best interest of an elderly patient to share relevant information with the patient's adult child, but generally could not share unrelated information about the patient's medical history without permission. This then segues into what's known as the minimum necessary rule. Only disclose what you need to as a provider. And if people have been treated for other items that fall outside of the coronavirus in this instance, and that is at issue, you can't go back into someone's health record and relay other information which may be more sensitive or protected at a higher level or given more deference. So providers really, really need to be conscious of that. Disaster relief disclosures, again, a covered entity may share protected health information with disaster relief organizations that, like the American Red Cross, are authorized by law or by their charters to assist in disaster relief efforts for the purpose of coordinating the notification of family members or other persons involved in the patient's care of the patient's location, general condition, or death. It is unnecessary to obtain a patient's permission to share the information in this situation if doing so would interfere with the organization's ability to respond to the emergency. And just as I was asked about in relation to the Ebola virus, you have to look at the good of the public versus an individual's rights. And that's what's in play here. And under these facts and circumstances, it's not unreasonable. Another type of disclosure that providers may share are those to prevent a serious and imminent threat. HIPAA expressly defers to the professional judgment of health professionals in making determinations about the nature and severity of a threat to the health and safety of an individual. Disclosures to the media or others not involved in the patient notification. Again, affirmative reporting to the media or public at large about an individual identifiable patient or the disclosure to the public or media of specific information about treatment of an identifiable patient, such as specific tests, test results, or details of a patient's illness may not be done without the patient's written authorization or written authorization of a personal representative who is a person legally authorized to make health care decisions for the patient. I'm often asked whether this applies to a person disclosing their the status of their own health, whether it's that they have the coronavirus or that they've been diagnosed with cancer. No, it doesn't affect the covered entity or business associate because it was the individual themselves that chose to post about their specific medical condition to the public. This is the minimum necessary standard. Basically what this means is that you need to make reasonable efforts to limit the amount of information disclosed to that which is the minimum necessary to accomplish that purpose. And that applies across the board. So a covered entity may rely on representations from the CDC about the protected health information requested by the CDC about all patients exposed to or suspected to have confirmed um, COVID-2019 is the minimum necessary for the public health purpose. Again, you don't need to go into the person's entire medical history. Additionally, internally, covered entities should continue to apply their role-based access policies to limit access to protected health information to only those workforce members who need to carry out their duties. And as we've seen prior to the coronavirus, if you're found snooping in patient records to see who's been diagnosed and just going into the EHR generally without a specific purpose with a specific patient, 
then you could, in fact, be in breach of the policies and procedures and could be fired. And there have been reports of that happening across the country. So again, when HHS says that they are not going to necessarily enforce certain things, there are certain things that they have honed in on as to what's permissible and what is not permissible. Another issue that has arisen and what I would call confusion around being a teleworker versus telehealth considerations where a provider is treating a patient, that's telehealth. And there are nuances that are already in existence but have been expanded upon during the coronavirus. And it's important for physicians to appreciate and other medical professionals to appreciate how they're coding and what's required in order to meet each of these particular coding guideline requirements. Even though some of the telehealth provisions have been waived during this national emergency. So safeguarding patient information, according to the February 2020 HHS Bullington, in an emergency situation, covered entities, and that would also include business associates and subcontractors, must continue to implement reasonable safeguards to protect patient information against intentional or unintentional impermissible uses and disclosures. Further, covered entities and their business associates must apply the administrative, physical, and technical safeguards of the HIPAA security rule to electronic protected health information. So that's directly from the horse's mouth, meaning HHS. And what's fascinating is that businesses have been required to have policies and pr procedures for well over a decade, going on two decades now in relation to HIPAA and the High Tech Act. And w one of those policies, which is crucial in a time like this, is the business continuity and disaster recovery plan. So your business continuity plan should already have provisions for teleworkers and the standards that need to be met. And we'll go into those next. Policy and procedures, as I indicated, should already be in place. However, they can be updated because there have really only been four identified pandemics since 1900. So 1900 is well before HIPAA and well before a lot of privacy rules and security rules came into place. And now is a good time to look at those and have reputable outside counsel review them and make sure that they are updated in accordance to have health disasters included and what can be done. Disaster recovery and business continuity plans. A lot of my clients we implemented a while ago, telecommuting or telecommuter checklists, which show all of the items that are required under the security rules, technical, administrative, and physical safeguards. What we then do is have the employee or independent contractor check off that they have things such as a firewall, a separate room, or a separate space that can be utilized, that they're using secure Wi-Fi, things of that nature, which are all very important. Then there's an attestation that says that they've completed the checklist and they've answered truthfully. From there, we get into training, which is crucial. And at this time, it may be appropriate to reinforce some of the items in this presentation internally. Next, have your IT department install appropriate software or send out thin clients, for example, if the individuals typically do not work remotely. And again, secure Wi-Fi is crucial. Don't go into a Starbucks, open your laptop, especially without a, a security privacy screen, and start working. That is one way to let a lot of hackers in, especially in this environment. Employers should keep workforce members up to date on government directives and to changes in hours of operation. And it really should go without saying that people should already be washing their hands and sneezing or coughing into their elbow, 
but in order for employers to make sure that they're meeting their OSHA obligations, they should have signs posted that workers need to wash their hands continually, not only after using the restroom, which is typically what we see when we enter a large variety of entities. So what is waiver 1135? Well, let's go to the second bullet point before addressing the first. Under section 1135 of the Social Security Act, the secretary may temporarily waive or modify certain Medicare, Medicaid, and children's health insurance program requirements to ensure that sufficient healthcare items and services are available to meet the needs of individuals enrolled in Social Security Act programs in the emergency area and time periods and that providers who provide such services in good faith, this is key, can be reimbursed and exempted from sanctions absent any determination of fraud or abuse. Because the president exercised his authority under the 1135 waiver when he declared an emergency, in the case of the COVID-19 pandemic, either pursuant to the Stafford Act or National Emergencies Act, and the HHS secretary declares a public health emergency under Section 319 of the Public Health Service Act, certain actions may be taken. And he did, in fact, take those actions. So what actions were taken? Specifically, it relates to telehealth or telemedicine. Again, this is different than teleworker and remote working policies, which business associates, covered entities, and subcontractors should be utilizing regardless. And we've seen OCR issue penalties for those items. One issue that comes up, whether it is in relation to teleworking or telemedicine is encryption. And yes, encryption is identified as, quote, addressable under HIPAA's security rule. But it is crucial that people appreciate that addressable does not mean optional. And if you go back for really a decade and look at what OCR did in terms of its enforcement actions, not only against private entities, but against public entities and state entities such as MD Anderson, as well as the state of Texas, items that were not encrypted, such as laptops and USB drives and emails that were sent unencrypted are significantly problematic. And they're problematic from the standpoint that if you don't implement encryption and you haven't documented a plan as to why you haven't implemented encryption, that takes you out of the safe harbor in the event of a breach, and that's when bad things happen. So addressable does not mean optional. And really, the good faith use of telehealth includes utilizing encryption, which is something that people should be conscious of. Having said that, there's always been a difference between when a provider interacts or sends PHI to a patient and when a provider interacts with a business associate or a business associate interacts with a subcontractor. All of this is absolutely imperative to appreciate because the exercise of discretion applies to telehealth provided for any reason, regardless of whether the telehealth service is related to the diagnosis and treatment of health conditions related to COVID-19. Again, you really need to stop and think what have I normally done? Well, I always advise my clients when patients say, please email me my designated health record to have them acknowledge a form that says you have requested that protected health information be sent in what is known to be an unsecured manner. We are not responsible for any breaches once this leaves our possession or if someone use this information on the other end. And that can also apply to an unencrypted CD-ROM or a US 
USB drive. So that has always existed. Again, this isn't new, but you really have to discern between what's reasonable and what is good faith. Telehealth typically does require encryption. So that's something else you really need to be conscious of. But basically, communication technology considerations between covered entities and patients, HHS identified those which are permissible, such as any non-public facing remote communication product available, which includes applications that allow for video chat, such as Apple FaceTime, Facebook Messenger video chat, Google Hangouts, or Skype. There are also typically uh, items in these various applications where you can move a slide to encryption. Most iPhones, unless you have an older model, are automatically encrypted. Some of the older models you used to have to flip encryption, so depending on the phone that you have or the iPad or computer that you're using, you probably want to double check that that box has been checked. Providers are encouraged to notify patients that these third-party applications potentially introduce privacy risks and providers should enable all available encryption and privacy modes when using such applications. What's important here is that as we've seen with GDPR and CCPA and things of that nature, a lot of people don't appreciate what they're accepting in terms of privacy risk and their data being utilized. That's a separate issue, but it's something that you absolutely want to make sure is in place during this time in particular. So along those lines, just make sure, again, you're taking reasonable measures and that you're being prudent when it comes to the uh, encryption and confidentiality, integrity, and availability of that information. Non-permissible, again, is the public-facing communications. It also means don't post stuff about patients on Facebook and Twitter and all of that. As we already went through, that is not permissible. Telehealth does apply to providers, dates of service on or after March 6th and continuing throughout the COVID-19 public health emergency. No end date has been declared as of yet. Sites of services, services provided all across the country in all settings, including patient homes. Reimbursement, and this is particularly a sensitive area because this is where you could see that fraud or abuse provision invoked that the DOJ mentioned if providers begin upcoding. So telehealth visits are very distinct from e-visits and check-ins are considered the same as in-person visits and are paid at the same rate as regular in-person visits. That is only for telehealth visits where you are FaceTiming or using an interactive type of application where you can see and view the patient and whether or not they have that rash or things of that nature. E-visits and check-ins are basically a lot quicker, and those can be done by phone, but they're also telehealth related, but just different. And I'll get into that in a moment. Patient deductibles and co-share. Medicare coinsurance and deductible would generally apply to these services. However, HHS is providing flexibility for healthcare providers to reduce or waive cost sharing for telehealth visits paid by federal healthcare programs. The key word is flexibility for healthcare providers. Typically, if you were waiving a copay, it needs, needs to be done on an individual basis and it's based on financial need. Typically, you can't do it across the board. That's something that absolutely cannot be done and there have been a lot of successful False Claims Act cases regarding that. Patient status, new versus established, to the extent the 1135 waiver requires an established relationship, HHS will not conduct audits to ensure such a proper relationship existed for claims submitted during this public health emergency. 
but again, you have to be prudent and you have to make sure that you're acting in good faith or it could open one up to fraud and abuse problems down the line. Types of service, reasonable and necessary services, including E&M service, ESRD, mental, behavioral health, and preventative services. Eligible providers, physicians, and certain non-physician practitioners, such as PAs, NPs, and CNMs. Other practitioners, such as certified nurse anesthetists, licensed clinical social workers, clinical psychologists, and registered dietitians or nutritionists, may also furnish services within the scope of their practice. Again, that's key. You can't go off the reservation and go outside of the scope of your typical practice. Inconsistent with Medicare benefit rules that apply to all services. Telecommunication technology and interactive audio and video telecommunication system that permits real-time communication between the provider and patient who are located at different sites. So what are some specifics regarding telehealth coding? Previously, I mentioned that Medicare telehealth is very distinct from a virtual check-in and an e-visit. A virtual check-in is a five to 10 minute check-in with a practitioner via phone or another device to decide whether an office visit or other service is needed. A remote evaluation of recorded video or images submitted by an established patient. E-visits, a communication between a patient and their provider through an online patient portal. The CPT codes are there and that's important. The other item that I really wanna hone in on are HCPCS codes are different from CPT codes, which are also different than ICD codes. ICD codes are basically promulgated by the World Health Organization, but then CMS takes those, every country takes those and curtails them to their own systems coding. But the ICD, CM, and PCS codes do come out of HHS and CMS. CPT codes, on the other hand, are promulgated, excuse me, by the American Medical Association and they are adopted, but those are drafted specifically by the American Medical Association. HCPCS codes, known as HCPCS codes, those typically refer to codes that we see a lot with local coverage determinations and a lot of durable medical equipment. So you just want to be conscious of coding correctly and appropriately during this time. And if you are a provider, stay within your lane in terms of the scope of your practice. Key considerations when selecting a code, there are new patients, an individual who did not receive any professional services from the physician, non-physician practitioner, or any other physician of the same specialty who belongs to the same group within the previous three years. An established patient is an individual who has received some professional services within that three-year period. Virtual check-ins and e-visits require that the patient be an established patient, even with the coronavirus exceptions. A Medicare telehealth visit does not have that same language. So that's something to uh, be conscious of, but it's also going to be helpful to providers because they could during this time end up with new patients. And so a Medicare telehealth visit is the best way to go in order to make sure that you do have a legitimate patient on the other end and not just someone who is going through and utilizing false numbers and things of that nature or trying to uh, abuse the system. So again, to establish that initial patient contact of a new patient use telehealth and not a virtual check-in or an e-patient. It actually, and rightfully so, does benefit a provider from a remuneration standpoint because typically first encounters and not sequela encounters are in fact longer visits because of the intake of the information and patient history that's required. 
So here are some coding guidelines here, exposure to COVID, and these are COVID specific. I'm gonna put these up here, but I'm not going to go into them as you have a copy of the presentation. Medicare waivers may not apply to Medicaid and private insurers, and what is on this slide is subject to change. It is absolutely vital that you as a provider look at individual websites for private insurance companies and for individual states and their Medicaid programs as to what is going on. The waiver, the 1135 waiver was specific to Medicare and that's something to be very vigilant about because even though the federal government might not pursue actions in the private realm later on down the line, it does not preclude class actions unless of course that exception of the face masks or another type of medical product is met under that act that I mentioned earlier. But typically, if you are upcoding and there are issues surrounding that, there could be private causes of action for fraud and abuse. And you really need to be conscious of making sure that you're working in accordance with each individual's payers, including Medicaid parameters during the coronavirus in terms of telehealth and telemedicine. So be careful of that. That is an area of potential fraud and abuse. Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1976, it was passed to assure safe and healthful working conditions for working men and women by authorizing enforcement of standards developed under the act by assisting and encouraging the states in their efforts to assure safe and healthful working conditions by providing for research, information, education, and training in the field of occupational health and safety. OSHA did issue guidance and this guidance is not a standard or regulation and it creates no new legal obligations. For those participants who practice in the arena of the False Claims Act, that is what the brand memo and it is exceptionally important to realize that this is guidance. Having said that, OSHA has been espousing to wash your hands for over four decades now, so this should be nothing new. Uh, in terms of that. The need for employers to employ protective equipment as well as employers to provide their employees with a workplace free from recognized hazards likely to cause death or serious physical harm. I'll put a caveat in that, and that's obviously in healthcare. Healthcare workers are going to be exposed to conditions and diseases. The key, again, as the Surgeon General said, is not for the public to go and buy things up. It's more that we need to get the gloves and the masks and other equipment into the hands of healthcare providers. That's absolutely crucial. But as long as hospitals are doing what all that they can do to make sure that the surfaces are wiped down and that environmental services is working to ensure a sterile environment, then they're really acting in accordance with what they need to. And again, practitioners, medical professionals, please be sure and wash your hands uh, after every patient interaction. And that's something that, again, is required anyhow, so none of this is new. Check with your state plan because, again, states can vary even in relation to OSHA and occupational guidance. OSHA factors, how and where and what sources might workers be exposed to. This is what people should know. The general public, customers and coworkers, sick individuals or those at high risk, such as international travelers, those who have had unprotected exposures to people known to have or suspected of having COVID-19, workers, individual risk factors, such as older age, presence of chronic medical conditions or immunocompromising conditions such as pregnancy. Occupational safety and health professionals use a framework called the hierarchy of control to select ways of controlling workplace hazards. And finally, use the surgical N95 respirator when both respiratory protection and resistance to blood and bodily fluids is needed. Again, we see this a lot in the healthcare 
setting. OSHA also has bloodborne pathogen standards, which are found at 29 CFR 1910.1030. And basically, the provisions of the standard offer a framework which may be helpful to control some sources of the virus, including exposures to bodily fluids and respiratory secretions not covered by the standard. Worker risk occupational exposure levels are based on industry type and contact, and it ranges from very high to high to medium to low. Force majeure clauses, we need to start out with a general definition. Black's Law defines force majeure as an event or effect that can be neither anticipated nor controlled. What's interesting is the term force majeure is derived from French civil law. Force majeure clauses allocate risk between the contracting parties if performance becomes impossible or impracticable because of an unforeseen event. Courts first look to the four corners of the document. Industry customs as well as the relationship between the parties are also considered. And then an act of God could be and has been interpreted differently by the courts than emergency measures. So if the parties have a limited and closed list, then it will depend upon the event specified in the contract. If the contract includes pandemics, epidemics, or quarantine, then it will almost certainly be applicable given that COVID-19 was declared by WHO as a pandemic and several countries have imposed quarantines and attempts to contain the spread of the virus. So here are some questions companies should ask. One, whether the failure to perform a contractual obligation due to COVID-19 related causes constitutes a breach of contract or default. Whether there is an exemption under contractual force majeure provisions for such pandemic causes. Whether the government or quasi-government civil authority directed closures and shutdowns due to COVID are covered by insurance and whether events caused by or related to COVID-19 constitute a material adverse change under the terms of a contract. If your contract is silent as to force majeure, courts look to the common law. The Uniform Commercial Code excuses a seller from timely delivery or for non-delivery of goods where its performance has become impracticable either by the occurrence of a contingency, the non-occurrence of which was a basic assumption on which the contract was made, or by compliance in good faith with any applicable foreign or domestic governmental regulation or order whether or not it later proves to be invalid. So here are some takeaways before we delve into questions. Everyone should take the suggested WHO five steps and increase hand washing, wiping down surfaces, social distancing, and then sneezing or coughing into one's elbow. HIPAA still applies as well as other laws that deal with the privacy and security of sensitive data. Use the minimum necessary rule when discussing or disseminating protected health information about a patient. Telecommuting requires the utilization of the same technical, administrative, and physical safeguards, as well as training. Force majeure clause interpretation depends, first and foremost, upon the contractual language. Next, keep employees up to date in terms of guidance from the government and changes in operations. And lastly, use universal precautions, especially in healthcare, and be sure to read the medical records.